If you would take your Bibles, go with me to Ephesians 4. We'll be in 17 through 24. Let's pray. I don't even know where to begin, Lord. I, I'm, I'm familiar with this text. I, I, I know this text. That's not the issue. Am I really willing to come face to face with this text? There's only one way. There's only one way I can, I can be, that I can be made right with you, Lord. And it's you. Away in the manger isn't just a children's song. I'm asking that, Lord, you fit us for heaven to dwell with you there. That's real. And that's where I'm at. There's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that I can do. There's no amount of effort on my part to be made right with you. And no matter how hard I try, I'm still in desperate need of the cross. And I praise you for it, Lord. And I know for fact, despite sometimes how alone I feel, I'm not alone. Every person that draws in breath this morning needs the cross as badly as I do. And I praise you that you brought us the cross. That you sent your son, not just to be born in a manger, but to to come with the purpose of dying on my behalf. We praise you for it. We give strength today in Jesus' name. Amen. Rod has encouraged us, elders, um, to jump in any time and preach. And this text is weighed heavy in my heart, and it has for several years. I didn't want to pass up the chance. So in spite of the anniversary, I was like, I've, I've got to preach this text. So <clears throat> much of my own personal ministry and my philosophy of counseling revolves around this text. So much of the troubles that I've seen in church revolves around a failure to grapple with this text. This text is pivotal to why so many thousands, even millions, view the gospel with such lax. It just doesn't matter. I mean, we hear that Jesus died and rose again. But it simply doesn't mean a whole lot. We need to skip this text, if that's our view. Because this view, this, this text, uh, that, the, the whole philosophy of, of, of separating Jesus and his death and resurrection from real life dies mercilessly upon the text we're about to read. So without further ado, Ephesians four seventeen to 24 Now this I say, and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs 
uh, to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, this passage is, is broken up very easily into three parts, um, three parts that will follow today. The first part um, <clears throat> is the old life, and uh, we'll circle back around and talk about it more, but the first part is the old life. And so we're going to add to the description that we've already seen in chapter 2. So chapter 2 at the very beginning says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, uh, the spirit that is now at work in the sins of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. According to this text, in chapter 4, we're also futile, darkened, alienated, ignorant, and calloused. That's God's description of us. No matter how wise we think we are, no matter how good we think we are, no matter how righteous we think we are, this is God's description. Part two of this text has to do with a right understanding of the gospel. Uh, this is why so many churches are very shallow. And it's why churches are empty spiritually. They've unwittingly substituted a cheap gospel for the real thing. We are either busy with Christless works that don't entail the gospel at all, or a mix that with a second place gospel which declares an independence from the gospel, except on Sundays and church gatherings. A false gospel declares that Christ died and rose again, and that's all well and good, but I'm going to separate that truth from trying to really figure out things in my life. So Paul unpacks the correct understanding of the gospel in the second part. And the last part, he begins a description of the new life, which will carry us really through the rest of this letter. And for lack of a better term, one in which many cringe to hear, um, let alone believe, uh, Christianity is actually a cookie cutter. There is such a thing as cookie cutter Christianity, which means, and we're in the season for that, where if you use a cookie cutter, everybody's aware you get the same kind of cookies every time you use the, the cookie cutter. Well, guess what? You can, you can cut across history, and no matter what, a saved person will always have this. This will always be their experience. They will always be able to testify to these things. So the last part's gonna be, we're gonna, we have to put off and we have to put on. Not just that we have to, but we will, if we're saved. So the first part is the old life. Listen to Paul at the very beginning of verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. The word now establishes that we've moved from being begged, which was verse 1, if you would. Uh, verse 1 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk a man, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So he's there there's an aspect of begging, some some imploring in verse one. And understand that when you're begged, it puts hope on the hearer that the hearer will choose to do what's right. 
Paul is looking, Paul, Paul, it's Paul. I mean, he's a slave of Christ, according to this text in verse 1. Paul's in chains. This is a, uh, a prison epistle. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we have all of the first three chapters. We are loved. And, and by that, you just have to look at what, how Paul has described it. It's, it's an unreal kind of love. And he's begging us in verse 1. Begging us. That we should do what he says because of, well, all of the above. But commands, which is verse 17, it's a command. It takes away, commands take away choice. Commands have as their backdrop consequences. In this case, the hearer has to lean on the authority of the commander. And in this case, it's Paul. Paul is, is commanding us to put off and put on. He's directing us back to the Lord himself. That this is something that Christ himself taught. It's, it, it's, it's not just Paul saying, well, I have this. And we see this in Rome in, in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul is saying, not I, but the Lord. It's still an apostle speaking. It's still authoritative. But this is directly from God. This is directly from Christ. So this I say and testify in the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So he gives this command in the Lord and he not only commands in verse 17, but it's connected to a testimony. So it's not just from God. It's not just commanded. He's going to say, this is the testimony of Christianity. This is the testimony of everybody who's ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and has responded. So in other words, the gospel doesn't just promote change in the sinner. By its very nature, the gospel will change a sinner. So a changeless gospel that leaves you living for yourself and not for the glory and honor of God, it's not the gospel. Something has to change. And what changes for us? Well, grasping what changes for us may be rather difficult. The reason is because it's not because the change itself is, is complicated. It's because our own hearts are deceived And so deep is that deception and so convincing that only the Lord can show us our own deception. So praise God for his word, because his word exposes us, whether we like it or not. We we need that exposure. We need to be seen for what we are or will continue to believe that change is absolutely necessary for everyone except us. I mean, before Jesus offered living water. In John 4, to the woman at the well, he confronted her sin. Jesus doesn't offer the message of hope without the doom of impending judgment. And we are fools to do it differently. What will make the sinner flee to the gospel of God? What kind of people are we? A couple of years ago, some of you remember this. I pulled out, we we did... I don't know, it was a day-long VBS thing, and I pulled out some undershirts that looked white. It looked white. Well, a couple days before, day before, something like that, I bought new undershirts, and I happened to pull one of those out. And all of a sudden, what we thought was white became, you guys remember kitchens that were off-white? What was that word? Cream, bisque, off-white. 
all of a sudden what we thought was white, it's not white anymore. It looks kind of white, but it's not. We think that we are righteous. We think that we are good people, but we are not. When we are, and on the judgment day, it's not going to be, well, I'm, I'm going to be put next to somebody who is maybe on, maybe kind of righteous like I am. And then the two of us are going to be compared to whoever's a little bit more righteous they're getting in now. It's going to be my righteousness compared to the righteousness of Christ. <clears throat> we have to get down and win from ourselves. And this is the, the 17b. He says that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. <clears throat> of course, he gives a blanket statement that will soon entail everything that follows. Walk means style of life. Uh, the same word is used in uh, in Philippians 3. So you fast forward a couple of pages. Verse 17. Philippians three seventeen. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk. As enemies of the cross of Christ. And we're, again, we're not talking about, we're not, it's, it's not walking like I saw an ad for, um, for walking sticks in a magazine and it was, we can now finally walk the walk. <laughs> we're not talking about actual walking. We're talking about a style of life. Vine's expository dictionary explains that word as it is sometimes used in the state in which one is living or of that to which a person is given. In other words, what <clears throat> what occupies your attention? It doesn't mean that the schedule isn't full and that there aren't things to do down here, because there are. The question is, in the midst of them, what matters? Who are Who are you looking to as an example? Is it... The believers that God has providentially placed in fellowship with you? Or is it those who subscribe to worldly wisdom and walk according to the world? What, what occupies your attention? What occupies your mind, your heart? A saved person cannot proceed to make even the tiniest decision without thinking of Christ and the cross upon which he died. A saved person thirsts for the exaltation of the cross. This is not the testimony of a lost person. But why would a lost person have a style of life that is Christless? Why would they be occupied with the world and not the cross? Think about what has been done for us on the cross. Why would that not just blow people away? Why does it blow us away? Why would they walk in a style of life just like the Gentiles? In fact, why do lost people Act so lost. Third part of 17 answers that question. Because the futility of their minds. A, a futile mind is so proud as to believe that every thought and or intention is inspired. I think it, therefore, it must be right. Every single thought must be loaded with wisdom and good sense. But a futile mind leads to, and this is Peter O'Brien, and we're going to lean on him a little bit. He says, idol worship. This, this futile mind leads to idol worship, as well as to the emptiness of human endeavors which are sought to bring lasting satisfaction. So in other words, a futile mind is convinced that satisfaction is found in anything except the cross. 
He goes on, verse 18, says they are darkened in their understanding. And of course, the implication of this phrase is that the world is incapable of grasping light. Not that we're not responsible, but without the Spirit opening eyes, we will continue to express a darkened understanding. Second part of verse 18, we're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. The word alienation there seems really harsh. And yet a person who doesn't know God is an alien to God. An alien. You know, UFOs and that kind of thing. I mean, if an alien walked through the door, we're like, what? Is he smarter than us? Are we smarter than him? You know, he doesn't look like us. There's something wrong. That's an alien. We're an, we're an alienation before God. Uh, in our first church, there was a lady named Maxine. Maxine was a born and bred. And I don't know if she, other than going to Quincy... She was a Lewis, she was born and bred Lewis County. And she was, at that point, I don't, she's probably still alive, I don't know. She, she was in her 80s, like upper 80s. I, and at one point I, I said, what, what if I dropped Maxine in China on a one-way ticket? No luggage. No friendships. Nobody else. China. Different culture, different language. None of it would make sense to her. Imagine a newborn baby being dropped off at the doors of an orphanage. Or worse. Guys, as a side note, Rome would give birth to their babies. Babies they didn't want. They'd just put them down the drain. Understand our culture is not getting worse. We're as bad as we've ever been. We would consider this estrangement of a child to be bad, but it gets worse. Imagine a person not only left for dead, but choosing to be left for dead. Our choices say, God, leave us to die. A person who's alienated from God is due to this kind of ignorance. Peter O'Brien again states, to know God means... To be in a close personal relationship with him, knowledge has to do with an obedient and grateful response of the whole person, not simply intellectual assent. Stop and think about that for a minute. To know God means to be in a close relationship with him. Knowledge has to do with an obedient and grateful response of the whole person, not simply intellectual assent. Demons intellectually assent They believe in God. And James says, you do well. You do well. You you, you believe in God, that's great. So so does the devil. Ignorance in this text, Peter Ryan goes on and says, is a failure to be grateful and obedient. Not to know the Lord is to ignore him. To say no to his demands. And we sit back and go, Peter O'Brien is, this this guy, he's out of his mind. He has no way. That can't be right. Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. 
John 15.10, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love just as I have kept in my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Just think about that for a minute. I do not abide in the love of God if I say no to God's commands. That's Jesus, by the way, in Luke 6 and John 14 and John 15. That's not Jason. That's not Peter O'Brien. That's not Rod Omas. That's Jesus. The reason we would think this to be unfair of God is proof that we are ignorant. That's not right. Exactly his point. If we sit back and say, that's not fair, that's not right. It's like somebody who is a mass murderer telling the judge that he's unfair by sentencing him forever into a prison. There's no difference. We would think that's, a, that's really absurd. Exactly, it is. We're no different before God. So what, what are the results of all of this darkness, this darkened understanding, this ignorance that is in them? Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So he goes on and calls the lost person a callous person. A calloused or hardened life is proven in the giving over to sensual desires and not just lustful desires. Paul said that I didn't know what it was to covet and when coveting came along, I coveted everything. It doesn't have to be sexual. He coveted everything. And and Paul goes on and says, and not just over to a sensual life that we're given, but to a greedy life. And we're dominated by an I want, I must have this kind of lifestyle. How dissatisfied do people become when they don't have what they think everyone else has? And, and in fact, they will destroy themselves in an attempt to get what they think everybody else has. Why do it? Why go crazy to satisfy yourself to your own destruction? Well, this is what a callous life looks like. This is, this is the explanation for addictions. World around us cries genetics. <laughs> My mom wouldn't touch alcohol because she was convinced that her dad was an alcoholic genetically, and so every alcoholic has to take their first drink. So she's avoided it, which is good. It's okay, but to blame genetics, not according to the text, bad idea. Or how about, ah, uh, 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 the world says past experience, right? Something that happened. Look, when I was born, I was born in 15 minutes. So now I'm in a hurry for everything. It's true. 14, under, under 15 minutes. My mom started having labor and therefore I'm in a hurry now. That explains it all, right? I'm never late for anything. I'm always on time or early. Why? world says what? That's because something happened to him a long time ago, and therefore that is the way it is. Now flip that over a little bit. I sin against my spouse because, because I saw my parents sinning. That's how they, that's how they fought, therefore that's how I'm going to fight. So in other words, it's not really my fault. See? It's always somebody else's fault. Or the world just doesn't give an explanation at all. Your kid is acting up at school. Take a pill. No explanation. There are things that are said 
when I'm at work, and they are shameful. Like, I cannot believe, not only did you actually think of that, that you actually said it. The next guy over says something worse than the first guy. And you know what's shameful? It's not us going, oh. It's the, it, it's the rounds of laughter from the people around us. It's, it's not the shame. It's the fact that we just don't care. Now, I just tell you, all this can be maintained. This kind of life can be maintained if we believe in a false gospel. You know, laugh at a dirty joke? Great. Don't believe in Jesus. Understand that if you adhere to a false gospel, what we're talking about doesn't matter. In fact, I can tell you right now, if you believe in a false gospel, you are figuring out how to justify how this doesn't apply to you at all. That's exactly what a false gospel would do. A false gospel wants to leave you just like you are. It doesn't really matter whether you like the Bible's description or not. If you believe in a false gospel, it doesn't matter. This just leads to the second part, a right understanding of the gospel. Notice verses 20 through 22, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. What a loaded statement. Paul basically is saying that Christianity 101 begins with, here it is, kids, this is a big word, are you ready? Abandonment. That's a big word. If you don't know, if you don't know, ask your mommy. Well, ask your mommy. Don't ask your daddy. Abandonment. Okay. If we're going to follow Christ, it, it, it's abandonment. One Christianity one hundred and one is is I have to give up. I will give up my old life because of a crucified Messiah. You cannot live like you used to live. In fact, to not abandon the old life according to this text, assumes that you really haven't heard the gospel. It doesn't mean that it's not being preached, because it's being preached. It's that we have not heard. Because Christianity, fundamental Christianity, Christianity 101 is abandonment. It's so basic. Paul says, assuming that you've heard about him, have you heard? Have you heard that Jesus died for your sins? That he rose again. You were taught in him, according to Jesus. Jesus said a tree is known by its fruit. And if if we love him, we're going to bear the fruit. John 15. It goes on and says, as the truth is in Jesus. So this substitutionary death on the cross, on our behalf, and the things that he has taught will always be true. That means that no matter how I feel, the truth will never change. Amen? That is good stuff. It never changes. It never changes. I change. I go back and forth on the way that I feel, but the Word of God never changes. Salvation will always ever be and only will ever be in Christ, in Christ alone. 
He goes on in the third part in, in, as in the description here is of the new life. And he says in verses 23 and 24 to, that we, as, because of Christ, we have to put off. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and is and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Guys, Christianity entails following Christ. Followers or disciples are people who adhere to the teaching of that teacher. Our teacher is unique. He's unique and that we have His Spirit living in us. This means that He, the risen Christ, actually dwells in us. In other words, His life is to be lived out through His followers. Here's a man who never sinned. In fact, he hated sin. Died for sin. Here's a man, though, God, who regularly demonstrated a dependence on the Father and whose life was constantly obedient. Put off, put on, is fundamental Christianity. I have the same Christ who hated sin and loved obedience living in me. But we compromise left and right and don't really care about the cross. Truth is, that's a man with a religion. But it's not a man with a cross. How do we put off and put on? Surely it just amounts to us finding our bootstraps and pulling really hard, right? Just try harder. Or does this text offer us a contrary solution? I would suggest that this text offers a contrary solution. We are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. This means multiple things, but it primarily means that we must constantly be reminding ourselves of what kind of wretched people we really are. Paul did this, by the way, in Romans 7, didn't he? O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God for Jesus Christ our Lord. But it's not just looking at ourselves in a realistic biblical light. We are to remind ourselves regularly of what kind of unusual, unworldly love that we are loved with. By the way, Paul did this in Romans chapter 8. It's matchless overwhelming, life-changing love of ours is only in the cross. Guys, no matter how sinful we are, no matter what we have done or not done and yet offended God, our sin, our sin, cannot and will never compete with grace. The Bible says it's superabounding. Where sin abounds, grace, it stretches further. So you've done, done 10 sins, grace gives you 11. What this also means is that we're called to, uh, what we're called to is first spiritual, then it's practical. Putting the cross before us on a regular basis is a spiritual exercise, a daily discipline. And when we forget the cross, everything else becomes important. Milton Vincent in his book, uh, A Gospel Primer says, Over the course of time, preaching the gospel to myself every day has made more of a difference in my life than any other discipline I have ever practiced. Can you honestly testify with that old hymn? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So we close today. Let me fit this passage into the broader context of Ephesians. Um, so far, 
And I want to say it two different ways. I want to say it positively. I want to say it negatively. Um, so let's go positively. We've we've established the work of salvation uh, being fundamentally triune. That's chapter one. All three persons of the Trinity are intimately involved in our salvation. And that such doing was before the foundation of the world. That's verse three of chapter one. And all of and all of this was for the praise of, of his glory in chapters one and chapter one, verses six, twelve and fourteen. So much so was salvation a work of God that you are a saved you that you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not your own doing. In fact, here we're we're we're, we're a week away, week and a half. Is it just a week and a half away? Come on, kids. How many days? What? Adults should not be answering. Come on, kids. How many days? Ten days. Okay. Ten days of Christmas. Salvation's a gift. There's not a gift you're going to open up in ten days that you deserve, that you're entitled to, that you've earned. It's all a gift. It's all given. Salvation is a gift from God. In fact, we are so much given salvation that God declares of us that we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works. And then he goes on, that's verse 10. In verse 10, he says more works that God himself prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's not just, well, if you can get around to the good works, that's fine. No, these are good works that he's prepared beforehand that we're going to walk in them. How can Paul say that so confidently? Because salvation is cookie cutter. If salvation is a work of God, you're going to walk in those in those works. How do you say that? It's Ephesians 1. The salvation includes our entrance into and inclusion in the body of Christ. The church is so fundamental to our walk. Paul states, so then, in verse, in chat, this is 2, 19 and 20. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In fact, it goes... On further in chapter three and says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Man, I'm going to take Jews who are close, but didn't make it. And I'm going to take Gentiles who are far off. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put them together. I'm going to take two groups of people that are basically enemies. They hate each other. I'm going to put them together. I'm going to make them one. Manifold wisdom of God. He's given us the structure of the church to equip us to have gospel conversations and fruitful discipleship. In fact, God cares so much about the whole notion of evangelism and gospel conversations and fruitful discipleship that he's given us shepherd teachers, evangelists, prophets, so that we can be equipped for this task. He's begged us in verse 1. He's commanded us in verse 17. And because of this, we put off the old self. And we put on the new self. Negatively, a gospel not based on the glory of God and the work of God, of the triune God, but maintains that man is the center of salvation. It's not the biblical gospel. A gospel where personal faith, which now has been minimized into a cliché, is emphasized more than the grace-giving God. That's not the biblical gospel. A gospel that says that your faith and your belief and your trust and all the, and it's private and it's personal and it has 
little to do with the, with the Christ of the cross, that's not the biblical gospel. Understand. A gospel that allows for constant excuses for why we don't need to obey and do the works of God. The, the, the works that God's called us to, in fact. That's not the biblical gospel. A gospel that leaves us always excusing our obedience. Or there's always somebody that can do it for us, but we fail to obey ourselves. That's not the biblical gospel. The gospel that holds the church loosely and doesn't, we don't need or want accountability. I can tell you right now, you've not experienced the biblical gospel. Not according to chapter 3 and 4. Church is pivotal. Yeah, take it or leave it. No, you really can't. Not, 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 not according to the text, you can't. A gospel that views shepherds, teachers, evangelists as hired guns to do the work for us. Not experience the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. There are moments at my job. I work at True. <clears throat> and those of you that have worked or work still know that there are moments where you want nothing more than to run to your water jug. Anybody else experience genuine thirst? That is exactly what it is to flee to the cross. You will not recognize how much you need Jesus until you see how thirsty you are. And it's not because we're not thirsty already. It's not because we're not already desperate people. We are desperate people. We are thirsty people. The question is, do we see how thirsty we are? Do we recognize how much we need the cross? That's the question. Because everything that's to follow in chapter 4, 5, and 6 is a whole bunch of commands. And those commands we're going to continue to write off until we grasp the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Once again, it is not because of something that I've done. It's not my righteousness. It's not my goodness. You fit us for heaven. You fit us for heaven. You make us right with you. You make us right so that we can dwell with you. There, there's a place where only righteousness dwells. And Lord, if, if we, we never come to the point where we recognize that it's not our righteousness that's going to be dwelling there, it's your righteousness alone, Lord, break our hearts. We don't get to spend eternity with you forever without Christ. So help us to know and understand what this gospel does to us and for us. Thank you that you refuse, that your love goes beyond our kind of love, that you refuse to leave us alone. You, you give a constant pursuit of us. And for that, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.